Good day, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm pleased to have with me today Dr. Caroline Bauma, who's Professor of Ophthalmology at the Tufts University School of Medicine and the New England Eye Center, where she's Director of the Vitro Retina Fellowship. Dr. Baumel is an expert on brolicizumab and its safety, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Caroline, welcome to Retina Synthesis. It's great to see you, Carmen. How are you? Good. I'm doing great. So let's just talk a little bit about the molecular characteristics of brolicizumab. They're unique. Sure. Um, so brolicizumab inhibits VEGFA, which is similar to some of the other anti-VEGFs that are available commercially. But what sets brolicizumab apart is that it has a very low molecular weight compared to the other agents. And based on that, you can pack a higher uh, anti-VEGF punch. You can get a higher molar anti-VEGF concentration per injection. Also, the, um, the uh, composition of the molecule is unique. It's a small chain variable fragment compared to some of the other anti-VEGFs, which are different types of antibody fragments. So these are all of the things that set brolicizumab apart. And um, it's hypothesized that the smaller size and the higher concentration of anti-VEGF activity are what account for its increased durability and its ability to have, for example, the OCT drier as was seen in Hawk and Harrier. Yeah, the results in Hawk and Harrier were uh, impressive because it was an agent that was non-inferior up to 96 weeks to a flibercept and it did show greater drying of the central retina, central macula. So um, you were involved in investigating the first safety concerns about this agent. And can you tell me the, the, the early story of this safety issues? Sure. Um, I think there were really two paths. One is that someone, when brolicizumab became available, um, there was a very much a lot of enthusiasm for early use. And the OCTs, and you are, you know, the father or the grandfather of OCT, one of them, the OCTs looked really impressive. Patients were definitely dry, um, which is sort of what we all would like our patients to be. Um, so, but some investigators noted that there was inflammation and there were some rare patients that presented with this retinal vasculitis with retinal arterial occlusion. So this occlusive retinal vasculitis. Um, some of these patients were appointed, were reported to the ASRS rest committee. And then um, there were other patients that just from investigators talking to each other. And it was really at the Macula Society in San Diego um, where um, Rick Spade had um, mentioned, you know, when we stand up and give comments, Rick Spade stood up and said some comments and other people said comments. It really, you know, attests to the value of our meetings that people were standing up and talking about this. And uh, that's when we sort of put together some investigators who had had some cases or seen cases and created a series that was published last year um, in ophthalmology, looking at the features of this 
occlusive retinal vasculitis. And I think the key point is most of these eyes were patients who were treated and they often, but not always presented in a delayed fashion after having a brolicizumab injection. They usually came in with blurred vision or sort of discomfort, floaters, vision loss, and um, they often had some inflammation associated with this occlusive retinal vasculitis. And um, it, it was really, you know, um, an unusual thing that we have not seen before with any of our commercially available anti-VEGFs that are approved. So I think it was uh, to make a pun eye-opening for us to have this. You know, we're so used to the safety of anti-VEGFs and, and we're really spoiled by that. So it's uncommon to see something like this. Did they have both anterior and posterior segment inflammation? Well, it was variable. Some patients had anterior segment only and really virtually nothing in the, in the vitreous. Others had minimal vitreous inflammation. Some patients had this kind of almost this vitreous opacity. It almost looked like um, pigmented debris. So we published in our paper a whole chart of the different types of manifestations that were seen. But one key feature in the patients who develop occlusive retinovasculitis is that it seemed to affect the arteries first and then the veins. And you know, there's really not a lot of things that affect the retinal arteries. Um, less, it's usually a less common finding than something that affects the veins. What was, then, the fundus, what was the fundus appearance in these eyes? So it was, it was really variable. There could be almost what looked like um, a, a small sheath vessel, and it was very subtle, but often it could be multifocal, these small little white sheaths affecting either the small uh, arteries or the large arteries. It could also affect the optic nerve. Um, there could be retinal whitening. And I think fluorescein angiography and wide field fluorescein angiography was very key to show subtle findings. Mm -hmm. um, and the Novartis was concerned about this. They convened a, a, a retinal safety committee. And what did that committee find? So they looked back retrospectively at um, patients who had inflammation or adverse events during the clinical study. And what they found actually is fairly consistent to what's been found in other studies, to what we found in our retrospective series. And that is that the rates of retinal vascular occlusion with retinal artery occlusion, this occlusive retinal vasculitis and inflammation appears to be somewhere between the rate of 0.4% and 0.5%. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be the rate of that. Now, the rate of inflammation alone has been variable. This has been reported between 4% and 9 to 10%, depending on which study and how the drug has been given. Mm -hmm. um, we looked at a series of 172 eyes retrospectively um, that were treated before COVID shut things down. And we found that there was about a eight to 9% rate of just inflammation. And it was typically mild and it often went away on its own. 
And in this whole series of 172 eyes, there was only one case of this occlusive retinal vasculitis, 0.5%. So I think that um, if this occlusive retinal vasculitis didn't happen, we might tolerate a little bit of inflammation, but we really don't understand why this very rare side effect happens. And, you know, Carmen, something I learned that I did not know before um, was that ophthalmology studies, and we, we think they're big, a thousand, two thousand eyes, but they really pale in comparison to, for example, cardiology studies looking at antihypertensives or cholesterol medications. They look at like 30,000 patients, way more than we do. And um, the thing is that ophthalmology studies are not really powered to, um, to uncover a rare side effect that's under 1%. Mm -hmm. So in chitin kestrel, which were the diabetic retinopathy, diabetic macular edema trials, uh, both of these agents were found to be non-inferior to aflibercept, so positive trial. What was the incidence of retinal inflammation and retinal inflammation and vasculitis in those studies? I think it was consistent, uh, relatively consistent with um, what we found in Merlin, but I have not seen the, um, I, I think it was pretty much in the same vein. And as I said, most of the inflammation alone seems to be mild and doesn't affect vision so much, which is why if you look at the final results, in chitin kestrel, brolicizumab was non-inferior to aflibercept. And it was also loaded six weeks, every six weeks instead of every four weeks. But I think there's concern about that very rare side effect of the occlusive retinal vasculitis that is something that we have to tackle before we pull this drug into being a first-line agent. Well, recently, Novartis uh, terminated three clinical trials. Can you talk to us about those? I, th I think that in these three clinical trials, um, in these studies, patients were being dosed every four weeks, and this was beyond the loading phase. For example, um, in the Hawk and Harrier studies, which were the phase one pivotal, sorry, the phase three pivotal trials for neovascular treatment naive AMD, patients were loaded every four weeks and then switched to a longer durability between eight to 12 weeks. But in the studies that Novartis recently stopped, patients were treated every four weeks with brolicizumab for a prolonged time period. And when they looked at the preliminary results, they saw that the rate of inflammation was higher than they expected. And for this reason, uh, these studies were stopped when there was four week consistent dosing. They, they stopped the Merlin trial, which was uh, a macular degeneration trial. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Merlin? What was that study about? So the Merlin study was evaluating these patients that have recalcitrant fluid after a prior anti-VEGF therapy for neovascular AMD. And it was really evaluating these patients that have neovascular AMD that are difficult to treat that, you know, we might treat, you know, every four weeks with one of the other commercial agents and they still have fluid. 
And uh, we were a center in that study and enrolled patients in that study. And, you know, they, they treated patients with borlicizumab every four weeks, and it was a two-year study. And I think that probably they looked at that and realized that it was probably too long, you know, too much, too many injections, and that the rate of inflammation was high. And, and I think this medication was designed for durability and probably um, not necessarily an every four-week medication. So they also terminated the Raptor and Raven trials. What were they about? Um, those studies were also looking at uh, every four-week treatment. And um, again, they found the rate of inflammation was too high, but we don't have any of the details from other findings from these studies yet, but we will soon. Um, I think we're definitely going to be hearing about chitin kestrel a little bit more in the future. So brolicizumab is still approved by the FDA for use as uh, a three loading doses uh, and, and then uh, extended therapy. Correct. Um, I think, I think that, uh, you know, that Novartis has really tried to figure out why this uh, rare side effect happens. Um, and looking at things like uh, antibody levels and inflammation, looking at patient characteristics to see if there's some sort of factor that can be found that increases a patient's risk for this. Um, because, uh, but nothing really has been able to be pinpointed yet, other than that monthly dosing seems to increase the rate of inflammation, which is why they stopped these trials. Mm -hmm. um, there are patients who are still being treated with brolicizumab. I would say that for most people, it's unlikely the first line treatments, um, but there may be some patients who it does help. And there might be some off-label indications. For example, I've heard some people say that it's very helpful for radiation and retinopathy, other types of ischemia, because it does have this prolonged durability. Um, and I'm like eagerly awaiting to hear what the results are from, especially from Merlin, um, but from some of the other studies that have looked at brolicizumab, especially looking at for example, diabetics and vein occlusions, which are vascular events, did was there any increased uh, occlusions related to brolicizumab, and um, whether there'll be any way to use this drug in the future, mm -hmm. you know, safely? So there is some promise for brolicizumab, and the story remains open and is continued to continue to be told. Correct. Correct. Well. Thanks a lot for your time today. And uh, we'll be back to you about brolicizumab in the near future. Thank you very much, Dr. Baumol. Great to see you, Carmen.